Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jen Robinson, and I'm your host for this afternoon's conversation on this brilliant book, Voice to Parliament, with two wonderful Australians who need no introduction, Thomas Mayer, an amazing campaigner and tireless campaigner for the Uluru Statement, and Kerry O'Brien, award-winning journalist. Before we begin, I'd like to invite Brendan from the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council to do Welcome to Country. And good afternoon, everyone. My name is Brendan. I'm the cultural representative and cultural educator from Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council in Sydney. And our role as Aboriginal Land Council under the Land Rights Act, we are the cultural authority and the guardians and custodians of land within our boundaries. And as I just mentioned, guardians and custodians are not traditional owners because there's no traditional owners left within the Sydney area. And I'm here to welcome you to country and I share, always share a very brief history of country um, because it's part of country. My history is your history. My backyard is your backyard. Even though my backyard's probably a lot bigger than, than a lot of people's backyards here. It's important to understand that the land we're gathered on here traditionally belonged to the Gadigal. And the Gadigal are one of 29 tribes that made up the Eora Nation. And that word Eora, I'm sure we've all heard of that word Eora. And there's possibly not too many people, if any, that know what that word means. And that word Eora in Gadigal means man. There was a conversation that took place down at the Botanical Gardens where Pummelwoy's wife was asked, what do you call this place? And she didn't understand English. And she pointed and she said, Eora. The Conservatory of Music, not far from where that conversation took place, is actually built on top, directly on top, of sacred initiation site for men. This is where we get the word Eora from. And the boundaries for the Eora Nation start from the ocean and they're surrounded by three of Australia's most beautiful rivers. We've got the Hawkesbury River, the Nepean River and the Georges Rivers. In between those three mighty and beautiful rivers, there are 29 tribes that make up the Eora Nation. And the name of the tribe we gathered on here today is Gadigal. The Gadigal were on the front line when it came to the invasion. And in less than 80, less than 50 years, 80% of our people was wiped out due to disease. And it didn't take long for the English to realise this. And so they, there were instances of deliberately infecting clothing and blankets and handing that out to our communities. So in effect, using chemical warfare. The second wave of the invasion brought what I call the land grab. And with the land grab came the massacres and the slaughters. And my story is no different than a lot of my countrymen's story. I had 500 of my family members, men, women and children, that were all slaughtered just over the water for their cattle to drink. We then had a period of the kidnapped generation. I don't call it the stolen generation. It was a kidnapped generation. My mother was taken at the age of five, locked up in a jail for two weeks. They were sent to training camps. Kudamundra Girls Home, Kinchula Boys, Bomaderry is where the babies went, and many other training camps. And they were taught and trained how to be servants and slaves. And they were sent out to white families to work, never got paid a cent for the work they did, and punished for speaking their own language and practising their culture. I've got letters at home that Mum used to write to the then Minister of the Aborigines Protection Board while she was in Cootamundra. 
And these letters were, were letters written begging for money to have a haircut, to buy new shoes. And one of the responses was around the shoes. Sorry, madam, we won't be sending you money to buy new shoes as we bought you new shoes last year and those shoes should last you for another five years. And I'm not talking three or four generations away. It's my mother. In 1971, I was born at Crown Street Women's Hospital at Surrey Hills. The lovely Crown Street. It's no longer there anymore. But that's the last place that I ever felt my mother's touch in that hospital, 1971. Seven years ago, I found my mother's grave. And seven years ago, I found I'm one of ten siblings that have all been taken. As I mentioned earlier, the second generation has been taken. Now, the history I share with you, this is a very brief history of what we've been through because when you have a welcome to country, I always ask everyone to have a little bit of time to think about what we've been through to get to where we are today. Because 10 years ago, you would never, we would never have had a welcome to country. We would never have had a, an acknowledgement of country. And let's not forget, we are the world's oldest living continual culture. We've been here since the beginning of time. I grew up with stories that relate to Boami and his son Daramulam. And Boami and Daramulam created everything here. And I can show you the footprints of Daramulam where he's walked from one mountaintop to the other mountaintop. I can show you the footprints. I can show you the footprints of where Daramulam reascended back into the sky. So we've been here since day one. We don't have stories of how we've travelled from another country to land here because it's never happened. And I always like to say we've been here for 250,000 years plus BC. And the BC stands for before Cook. <laughs> Welcome to country ceremony. Traditionally we've been doing since the beginning of time as well. Welcome to country is no different than when you welcome guests and visitors to your house. We need to show them, our visitors and guests, what waterholes they can drink out of, where the toilet is, the sacred sites that they can and cannot visit. So we welcome the country as a tradition. It gives me great honour to welcome you all here on behalf of those Gadigal ancestors because their spirit is still in the lands and the waters. On behalf of Metropolitan Aboriginal Land Council as the cultural authority on these lands, it gives me great honour to welcome you all here today. Welcome to Gadigal country. Thank you for having me because you, you've become a part of the rejuvenation of our tradition and culture back on country. Um, and I'd love to stay and, and listen to this conversation. But for me, the traumas are ongoing. I've got to go and pay a white fella by the name of Wilson for parking on my own land. <laughs> I like to pay my respects to my elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend those respects to my non-Indigenous brothers and sisters as well. The only thing that makes us different is our language. It's the only thing that makes us different. So thank you, everyone, and welcome to Gadigal Country. Well, what a wonderful, sobering welcome. Um, first, I want to pay my respects to, to all of the First Nations people here in the room and listening online. Um, I acknowledge, too, that this is probably a triggering and traumatic conversation that we are still in this country having a debate about whether we should recognise First Nations people in our constitution and allow them a voice in the policies that affect them. So in saying that, um, I betray my own political opinion about what has to happen at this referendum, but I want to thank you both for writing this book. Um, I can't believe how we're still having this debate, but we are, and the fact is we are, and this is a remarkable contribution to it. So, Thomas, I wanted to start with you. What does this referendum mean to you and what are you hearing in your travels around the country with the communities you're meeting? Yeah, so for me, uh, it means justice. It means... Uh, 
recognising what should have been recognised from the very beginning when Cook first arrived, um, that these lands are sovereign Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands. Um, and as Brendan said, and I thank him for the, the, the welcome and pay my respects to the Gadigal people uh, and elders past and present. Um, but this has always been Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Uh, it's the culmination, I think, of, of a, a long, hard journey, a massive amount of hard work by Indigenous people. Uh, firstly, defending our families and our country, as, as any peoples would, uh, when these lands were invaded. Um, secondly, uh, you know, um, throughout uh, uh, the history of the Australian Federation, um, struggling to be heard, um, having many other statements and, and petitions, aspirational moments where we've come together as a people, put forward modest proposals, always putting forward a, a proposition to be heard actually, to, to have political representation or a voice in, in various iterations. Um, and having all of those statements and petitions uh, dismissed and ignored, but continuing to step up and, 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 and just call for these modest uh, proposals and to be recognised and respected. Um, the, each time, uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart itself, that we came together again and that we um, considered the lessons from the past and we suspended our disbelief that this nation, you know, the Australian people would listen to us about what we would propose as the form of constitutional recognition uh, that we could accept. Um, we did that hard work, the consensus building, the debates and, and, and the passionate discussions, um, the uh, uh, reciprocity that was involved in that, you know, the, uh, to to be able to compromise amongst ourselves because the nature of consensus is that it's never everything that everybody wants and then make this very generous invitation to the Australian people. That took a massive amount of hard work. And then when Turnbull dismissed it, which was predicted, which is why the Uluru Statement is written to you, the Australian people, um, we refused to take no for an answer and we worked for six years and so this referendum is a moment in time where all of that work comes together and all of the truth-telling that I'm sure many in this room have done, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, um, preparing the Australian public for this moment so that we can, uh, so that we can succeed and not fail. Um, this is the culmination of all of that work and all of that solidarity, and, um, and that's what it means to me, and uh, I'm throwing everything at this. Uh, I'm not going to stop working until the referendum later this year, and I hope that everybody in here is going to do the same. Kerry, I wanted to ask you about how the book came about and what made you two come together to write this book together. Well, uh, the, the first thing uh, to, to answer is that um, I've been a journalist now for 55, 56 years. And when I came to journalism at the age of 20, uh, I knew literally nothing of what Brendan just told us in a few moments there and the sweep of colonial history that he covered uh, so effectively, I knew nothing of how our constitution was written. I knew absolutely nothing uh, about the 65,000 years of rich culture and history and custodianship of this continent. Uh, I didn't know, for example, the fundamental drive of racism that underpinned that constitution and the thinking of our founding fathers, and I'll give you just one example. Edmund Barton, who was one of the founding Farton, <laughs> Farton fathers, <laughs> and, uh, and who became Australia's first Prime Minister. On June 5 of 1901, he said, let us keep before us the noble idea of a white Australia, snow white Australia, if you will, let us be pure and spotless. And that might help explain how Indigenous Australians were essentially, apart from the racist component that was in there, was the way it was uh, Indigenous people were also written out of it. 
the, the bald and confronting words when you read them today that say, Indigenous Australians will not be counted in this country. Indigenous Australians will not be counted. No explanation as to why it was just this bald statement of fact. Um, but in the 55 years since I've been a journalist, it was certainly very much a sharp learning curve. And, and in that time, I've seen my own close-up illustrations of the rawness and the awfulness of racism at work in many different communities, rural, regional and urban. And I've reported on all of the big landmark moments, the historic moments since then, uh, whether it was Gough and land rights, uh, whether it was uh, the, the first... Uh, I certainly know all of the, the promises made and the promises broken. Uh, I know uh, of the constant failures of policy and I came to learn that the main fundamental cause for those failures of policy was because Indigenous people were not a part of the process. They may have been, uh, in a figurative sense, maybe on paper there was an Indigenous voice, and there was. There were many Indigenous voices. But with each government that came along, those voices were changed. Some, in some instances, they were watered down. Occasionally, they were strengthened. In the case of John Howard and Atsik, Atsik was actually abolished and all of the roles that ATSIC had, many of which were highly productive, along with the blips uh, in, in the process, they were, they were handed back to individual departments, essentially still run by white men, mostly, and white politicians. And many of them had never seen indigenous communities. So I was conscious of all of those things uh, when Thomas rang me uh, late last year, it was actually early November, and he and I had got to know each other uh, when he'd brought out some of his earlier books and I had a couple of conversations with him uh, in our local region around Byron Bay. Uh, and we were on NITV together on one, one January 26 um, occasion, uh, which was not a celebration in that conversation. And so when he asked me, it didn't take me long to agree to do it with him. I've never collaborated with anyone else on a book. I had absolutely no idea how well we were going to work together. We worked remote. At no stage were we in the same room as we put this book together. We had a terrific editor in Bernadette Foley. We had great support from the publishers, Hardy Grant, uh, who incidentally uh, had more hope that this book would be successful than, uh, than any evidence. The first edition was going to, the first print run was going to be 8,000. And then a couple of weeks later, they upped that to 13,000 on the basis of pre-orders. And then they upped it to 19,000. And as we were starting, just before the start of the, before the book was launched, they decided on 29,000. And within this last week of us touring around, it's now up to 39,000. Now that's, that's not a boast. That's not a boast. What that is, is a sign of hope. Because people are buying multiple copies and they're gonna hand them around their family, their friends. They're gonna put them around the water cooler in their work. And what they're gonna do first is read it themselves and come to have a better understanding of what this is about so they can have a confidence in answering others who are amongst the waverers that you're going to change. <laughs> I think the book does a great job of uh, giving people more information and helping to convince those who feel unsure. There isn't enough information out there and this certainly helps. But let's talk about what the voice is and what it's not because I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding. Thomas, can you tell us a little bit more about what it is and before we get into what it's not? Well, firstly, the voice is the form of recognition that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have proposed in that unique opportunity at Uluru, where we came together from all around the country. Um, a voice is simply the ability to make representations on matters that affect us. So to have a say, um, and that is as simple as it is. That's, that's all it is. Many people say, well, we have Indigenous MPs in Parliament. There's quite a number now. Aren't those views already represented? What do you say to that? Well, Indigenous members of Parliament firstly represent the electorates that uh, they are elected from, uh, and they do that if they want to be re-elected. Um, secondly, to the political parties that they're members of, um, uh, and if they want to have a career as a minister or a prime minister, then, you know, their loyalty 
is with their party. Um, both electorates and political parties are mostly non-Indigenous people. And so, you know, they're not representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And also, we don't know how many will be elected at the next election um, or the subsequent one. And so this is quite different. This is about consistency. You know, consistent, uh, a consistent voice that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people ourselves get to choose and therefore hold to account in, in our own elections, our own democratic processes. Um, representatives that understand our culture and, and the issues in our communities because they live and breathe them every day. Uh, representatives that we as Indigenous people can see what they're saying on our behalf so, and, and then we can hold them to account. But also, importantly, that the Australian people can see what this representative body is saying um, on behalf of their grassroots, you know, driven by the grassroots, um, to the decision makers. And it's, I'm going to jump ahead to what it's not. It's not a third chamber. <laughs> I was it's about not to a ask right you. to veto. Um, but that transparency that the Australian people can see the solutions that we're uh, proposing to the decision makers, that gives us an enhanced democracy where Australians can hold them to account when they ignore it and things get worse. And Kerry, you made an excellent point and I enjoyed your chapter in this book about talking about the failure of government policy and the billions of dollars that have been um, spent poorly because we haven't had proper input from First Nations communities about the policies that affect them. Uh, what powers will this new voice have to have input into those policy discussions? Well, there are, there are a couple of things that will, that will provide the power. The first is that if the vote is yes as it should be across four states and, the na and nationally, um, then it will, have the, it will have the moral authority and the political authority of probably the most democratic expression that we are capable of having in this country, a straight yes or no vote across the nation on this particular issue. And if such a majority of people uh, saying to the politicians, this is what we want, you make it work, then it will be a brave parliament, certainly in the early years while the voice actually finds its feet, begins to take shape, begins to develop a confidence, uh, particularly if they are listened to. But then the second part of the power really lies purely with the credibility and the quality of the submissions that they will make to government and to the parliament on policy matters. Those are the two things that will give it power. But in terms of the breadth of your question, I can't think of a more effective or efficient way of answering the broad questions reflected than by reading from the speech of a prominent Australian politician in the parliament recently. And I'll quote, and I'll tell you who when I've finished. The voice has been called many things by its opponents, a third chamber of parliament, a fourth layer of government, a new house of lords. I prefer to call it what it is, an advisory body of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians trying to better direct federal government funds to achieve better outcomes. The voice is advisory. It won't be Moses handing down tablets from the mountain. The parliament will still be the democratic center of our national life. The parliament will still be the supreme in matters of law and policy. It will have no interest in where the Department of Finance purchases its paper clips or its recycled paper, as some have claimed. It will not run programs or dish out grants and it won't have interest in submarines, as some no advocates suggest. Rather, what the voice will do is to work on making our remote communities safer. It will work to get children to school and keep them there. It will work to address the terrible rates of infant mortality and renal failure in, in indigenous communities. And it will work to create local jobs and industry so that we can break a culture of welfare dependency. Frankly, it will have too much real work on its hands to worry about the boring culture wars of Twitter. <laughs> the voice, this is important. The voice is not about two classes of Australians. It's actually about eliminating the differences in economic and social outcomes that separate Indigenous Australians from other Australians. And here is the hub of it. How obscene is it that some people would stoop to the, to, the, to the lowest of the low to try to paint the voice as an opportunity for Indigenous people to feather their nests and claim somehow a superior privilege? 
there are two classes of people in this country now. And one of those classes uh, is the most marginalised community in Australia. So let me tell you who said this. Julian Lisa, who until the last, till, till the blink of an eye ago, was the hand-picked spokesman by Peter Dutton for the Liberal and National Party coalition to speak on their behalf on Indigenous policy. So who do we believe? Whose word do we treat more seriously? Julian Leeser, who had the role of, of, of Indigenous affairs handpicked by Peter Dutton or Peter Dutton. You look to the character of the people who are making the conversations to help you determine who's speaking truth and who isn't. Now, let's talk about some of the critiques from the left and the right of The Voice. And you've raised Peter Dutton, who has said that this is... I haven't raised him. I'd hate to think I'd elevate him. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to reach pretty far. <laughs> you've given him a dishonourable mention. <laughs> uh, you know, Peter Dutton says this is Orwellian, it's re-racialising our country, that it's our constitution that's made our country great. I would say we are, you know, in spite of our racist constitution, we are where we are. Um, but let's talk about it. Does this give people different rights? Uh, no, it doesn't. It's, as the Solicitor General said, it enhances our democracy. Um, we're not heard as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people right now, and if we were, then we wouldn't have the, the gaps in life expectancy, incarceration rates and all the rest. Um, we're merely around 4% of the population, but we're spread across over 100 electorates in this country. Um, politicians don't hear us. We're, we're not a priority because we have no democratic effect. Um, and so this voice enhances our democracy um, by giving us the opportunity to be heard. And a lot of the naysayers, including well Dutton and, and the no vote, would say, well, we don't know enough about it. There's not enough detail. There's not enough detail. Uh, that's why I love it. it's all the detail you need in this book. But let's look at our constitution. How much detail is there in our, the power to make laws for tax, for example? We don't have our entire tax code written in the constitution, but how do you address that? Well, uh, it's, it speaks for itself, Jennifer. I mean, if, if, if all of the uh, advisory bodies to government were to involve themselves out there very, outside their very specific brief, then there would be chaos. But when you look at, uh, at this false premise that's been set up around whether uh, Indigenous people should be able to make submissions, make representations uh, to Cabinet government, to Executive government, that is to government departments, their ministers and to the Cabinet, um, that somehow or other that is going to lead to the wheels of government grinding to a halt and, and the High Court is going to be flooded with a whole series of frivolous and specious uh, claims, uh, which will in turn bring it to a grinding halt. Uh, we, we've had such convincing refusing of those claims and uh, Thomas and I were sitting in the, one of the committee rooms in the parliament for the first day of the joint committee hearings on, that were examining the wording that's proposed for the referendum. And we saw two, uh, when it came to, in the afternoon, when it came to the, to the discussion about the, this, the, these legal arguments, um, there were two uh, witnesses on behalf, essentially on behalf of the No campaign. One of them, one of them argued, well, they weren't. They said not, so I'll give them that. But, but uh, one of them argued that we should, have, we should have a completely minimalist model uh, uh, of recognition going, to the, going into the, to the referendum. Minimalist, minimalist, minimalist was her, was her argument. Well, you can be so bloody minimalist that it has absolutely no relevance whatsoever. That's minimal. Uh, the, other, the other argument, which came from Greg Craven, a, uh, a, uh, an academic uh, constitutional law expert, who, uh, who argued that uh, the argument when you analysed it as to why there should not be access to executive government, it amounted to a political argument. It wasn't a legal argument. What he was saying was, we, we need to water this down in order to appeal to more conservatives. Well, is that really an argument? Uh, you know, a political concern as opposed to a fundamental, serious and important point of principle. 
Then came five other witnesses, uh, the former Chief Justice of the High Court, Robert French, another former highly respected High Court judge in Kenneth Hayne, uh, two of Australia's preeminent constitutional law academics, Anne Toomey and George Williams, and the leading silk at the bar of the High Court in Brett Walker, all of whom essentially expressed the same view, that it was a furphy to argue that executive government should be cut out and that any of these things would happen, that the process would take care of itself. And Kenneth Hayne pointed out, what's your problem with the High Court? It's actually one of the pillars of our democracy. It's a part of the process at work. It's why, it's why we can still call ourselves a democracy, because part of the job of the High Court is to keep the parliament honest. So their arguments were absolutely overwhelming. And I'm, I'm talking as a journalist who does still, even though I'm invested in this issue, I do have a capacity to make the same kind of analysis that I've always made on, on issues. And the disappointment to me was that the next day, so little of what we, what we heard that day was reflected in the media. And there is a part of the problem. There's a... The, the, the question, you know, about, uh, I mean, you, you set up the principles in the Constitution, right? And it's a bit like, you know, I, I give the short answers up here and then <laughs> Kerry gives the long, <laughs> the long answers. And I've learned that as we've travelled around the country together. <laughs> I'm working on it. You know, you set up that the, the, the Parliament can collect tax, but you don't say how much tax in the Constitution, all those sorts of things, you know, where the tax commissioner is, how he's chosen and all the rest. Um, we're setting up the principle that Indigenous people should be recognised through a voice that can make representations on matters that affect us. You know, that's, that's what we're voting on. And, and let's be clear, what is, what is the proposal about what's going into the Constitution, which is then above Parliament, and what is left to Parliament? Because there's a lot of debates about taking away Parliament's sovereignty, taking this away from, from the electorate. But what exactly is going to the Constitution and what will be left to Parliament to decide? Yeah, so I can, um, you know, paraphrase basically the 93 words that are going to go into the Constitution, should we vote yes. Um, that in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples, one, there shall be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, two, that the voice may make representations to the parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and three, the parliament decides the rest. Um, that's it, you know, we guarantee a voice, we guarantee we can make representations, and the parliament determ determines the model, um, which uh, is necessary because it needs to be flexible. You need to, uh, a, a voice, an institution needs to be able to evolve and improve over time, just like ATSIC should have been able to, just like all the other voices should have been able to, but each time, you know, a government has come along and just gotten rid of it. So I want to go to, we've got a lot of crit criticisms of the voice and, and voices who are criticising the voice in, in the public domain, one of them being Jacinta Price. Um, she talks about this being nothing more than a symbolic step and that we should be focusing instead on closing the gap or practical policy measures to address health education issues. What do you say in response to her criticisms? Well, that's, that's what we've been trying to do for forever and a day, right? <laughs> I mean, if that would work, then it would have worked by now. It doesn't. Uh, we need a constitutionally enshrined voice to be able to have the political influence that we need to get those outcomes. Uh, and so, you know, Price is completely wrong there. I, I, I don't agree that it's, uh, there's a lot of voices that no. are critical of this. I think it's a minority. Uh, I think there's a great problem with, uh, you know, the, the uh, effectiveness of the media and, and journalists to, um, to, you know, to bring to attention uh, the false arguments that are being made and uh, the repetition of those, even when they have been fact-checked. Um, so, you know, I don't think it is uh, a lot of people, but it is something that is a challenge. Just on that point, Jennifer, the, 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 the issue of the reporting of this, uh, I mean, I would say to journalists, don't shrink back from, uh, from challenging the Yes campaign. Uh, be as rigorous uh, as as you professionally should be. But don't let the no campaign get away with lies 
with deliberate misinformation, overstatements, deliberate attempts to obfuscate and to, and to um, confuse people. And, and uh, I'll just give you one illustration of good journalism at work, was when uh, the elements of the No campaign tried to, tried to get a, a story across that the grandson of Vincent Lingiari, one of the great figures of the 20th century in terms of milestone moments of indigenous activism, uh, they claimed that the grandson of Vincent Lingiari um, supported the No campaign. There were two lies. One was that he was Vincent Lingiari's grandson uh, and he made plain when he came forward that he was not and had not claimed to be. Uh, and the second uh, was that he, had not, that he did not um, support the No case uh, in the referendum. Now, The Guardian online did a very fine piece of fact-checking on that, very straightforward, a good piece of journalism, very effective, uh, and totally proved it to be the fallacious thing it was. Now, the credibility of the people involved in that uh, was called into question as a result of that. So where is the rest of the journalism doing that with all the other cases of falsity? And, and there's scatterings of it, but there is the, the, the no campaign, by comparison, are getting a lot of space, and I'm not seeing them called to account as much as they should be. Then we have critique from someone like Lydia Thorpe, who says, this is not enough. We need treaty. We need a reckoning. This is reconciliation. It's more of the same, not enough. What do you say to that? Well, you know, play the ball and not the, the man sort of thing. Um, the argument that a treaty should come first is uh, nonsense, basically, because treaties are already underway. Um, they're underway in the states, in the Northern Territory, uh, in most states. Um, in Victoria, the most advanced state and treaty has been going for, for around a decade now. Um, and experts say, including Indigenous experts, that treaties are going to take decades to reach uh, a conclusion. Uh, because of the complexity of treaty uh, over 200 years after first contact, uh, because of the power imbalance, you know, you've got states that are well established, um, that have, uh, you know, uh, uh, structure, uh, and resources um, versus, you know, f uh, Indigenous people that are, you know, coming out of poverty, uh, coming from uh, a place where we've been purposely divided for so long. Um, so there's a real imbalance in, in, in treaty discussions. Um, and why would we wait an uncertain amount of time for uncertain outcomes before we uh, build a structure from which we can speak for ourselves genuinely? Uh, and start to influence the issues that are common across all of our communities, really. Uh, housing, the justice system, infrastructure in our communities, uh, you know, uh, health, all of these things are common across our communities and we should be establishing a voice now that has the, the influence to, to make a difference. Uh, and the voice in itself is important to agree agreement making or treaty um, because we are in a federal system. And, uh, you know, the, the treaties in the states um, are going to benefit by the ability for us to come together nationally and have that discussion with the federal government about their obligations to treaty. Um, the other argument that is made is about uh, sovereignty, but this isn't about sovereignty. This is about establishing, again, a representative structure. Uh, the sovereignty is with the Gadigal or the Kararig or the Kalkagal, um, you know, those Larrakia, those nations. Um, and experts have said the only way that you can cede sovereignty is by them agreeing to do so in a treaty. Um, and that's not going to happen. So um, I, I just encourage people to look at the logic behind the arguments, whether it's from Senator Thorpe or Senator Price. Uh, you know, have a look through the fear-mongering that's going on uh, and, um, and make up your own minds. And there's a lot of common sense to what we're trying to do here. The other thing, Jennifer, is that, is that there are attempts to paint this as this is coming from the government. This is politicians that have put this together. This is a voice from Canberra. Hmm. 
utterly specious, utterly false. It is the complete opposite of that. Mm -hmm. How classic. I have to say we had a great session here earlier on this stage with Teela Reid and Stan Grant who spoke about what a compromise the voice actually is and what a generous gift this is from First Nations people uh, who could be asking for more and, and can be asking for more and I hope will ask for more in the future. But this is, for those naysayers who think we're giving too much, it is such a, a small a small ask that's being made of us. Really I'd describe it as just simple fairness, you know, to go back to what I said in my first comments about, you know, uh, we should have been... Uh, you know, we should have been at the table at the federating of this nation. Uh, I don't think many Australians would disagree with that today. If you were to have the constitutional conventions again, uh, if you were to, if we were federating just now, would Indigenous people be at the table or not? You know, I think most Australians would agree we should have been at the table. It's a simple matter of fairness. You Absolutely. couldn't be at the table if you weren't counted, Thomas. <laughs> well, yes. That now, made it should that have been in the Constitution? No. Yeah, I, don't think, I think we'd be counted as well. Yeah. We are going to have audience questions, so can I ask if the lights can go up and just start making your way to the microphones if you'd like to ask a question? Uh, so we'll come to you shortly. But I want to talk about what we need to do to get this across the line. For the referendum to be successful, what do we need? What's the polling looking like? Are we going to get there? So the, the, the polling numbers, we are in front in this fight, okay? There's been a slight dip in the polls, but we are in a better place than the no campaign is. Um, but, I mean, we talked about the challenges with the media and, uh, you know, and the lies and, and disinformation. The way that we overcome this is by you guys having conversations by you guys taking the information, you know, whether it's from this book or from the many other sources that can give you the truth about what this is about, um, and, and use that to have conversations with all of the people that you can influence. Work through them one by one, by one write them down. You know, who do you need to speak with? Um, do it now because you don't want to have that conversation and, and come to a screaming mess in an, in an argument that ends. You want to plant the seed. You want to listen to their issue. You want to be able to... Uh, equalise with them. You want to understand what it is and then give them the information that they need and then and revisit it. Um, this is the only way that we're going to do it, with grassroots campaigning, with Australians feeling that this is important enough to get out of their comfort zone and talk to the people that they can influence and then ask them to do the same. Uh, we're told that uh, every uh, religious denomination has signed up in support of The Voice. We're told that over 60 multicultural organisations have signed up in support of The Voice. We're seeing sporting uh, organisations coming out in support. We're hearing that many other community groups in their grassroots are getting engaged and involved. What I would like to know is with those church denominations that have signed up, what are you actually doing in support of that? How many of you who might attend a congregation are hearing, not just from the pulpit, but 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 within the networks of your diocese or parish or whatever you want to call it, your area, your community, how many of you are getting leadership from within your church? Uh, so whatever community groups, if you're in a multicultural organisation, what's happening there? The only, only other thing I would say is that uh, when Thomas talks about the grassroots, I take great heart. People say, ah, well, look at the history of referendums. They almost always fail, particularly if they're not bipartisan. I don't think that's our mood right now. I don't think the mood that we are experiencing in this nation is the same as it was for a Republican referendum where the Republican movement itself was hopelessly divided and so many of other of those referendums where they voted no. Just look at the results of the last election. People are becoming sick and tired of the failures of our politicians and of the cynicism reflected in the way that political parties often approach their politics. I think there is an enormous amount of concern about what's happening in our democracy. And we saw that reflected in the votes for the Teals. We saw it reflected in the votes for the Greens going up. In the case of the Greens, it's people, people slipping across to the Greens who have become disaffected with Labor, whose primary vote at that campaign dropped to 31%. 31%. And on the Liberal side, they lost six of their, the, the jewels in their crown. Six Teal seats for the very same reason and again, uh, virtually unprecedented lows in their primary vote. 
and, and behind that vote, an enormous number of young people and a huge number, a huge shift in the women's vote in this country, the tra traditional women's vote. So there is where so much of the hope of this, of this referendum is going to lie, with our young and with the women of this country. Look, just um, further to that, the, the Yes campaign is yes23.com.au and there's a Kitchen Tables campaign as well, togetheryes.com.au uh, that can give you the tools that, uh, you know, uh, a structured sort of a national movement to have kitchen table conversations um, and, uh, and that's one way of helping us to, to grow this movement. What does it mean if we fail? Because from, from my point of view, this is a test of the character of our nation. We cannot afford to fail this. Um, if, if anybody thinks that it's status quo the day after a failed referendum, it's not. Um, this is going to make things much worse um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for how, uh, you know, how people view Australia in the world, um, that we would reject such a simple and modest proposal as Australian people. I don't think that it's the sentiment of the Australian people to vote no. I, I think that, um, uh, well, the polling has been as high as over 60% support. Um, it'll be a matter of confusion and fear which is the entire strategy of the No campaign. Um, one of the things that drives me besides, and we've already talked about how um, this is going to be of great benefit um, to Indigenous people in our nation, um, but one of the things that I imagine is the day after a referendum, and you see Pauline Hanson, you know, Barnaby Joyce, and Peter Dutton, you know, with his re-racialising comments in this campaign, you know, dog whistling. If you could imagine seeing them on the television screen, smiling and laughing, you know, having knocked off this unique, you know, this once-in-generations opportunity. I mean, what a sad day that would be. You know, and Tony Abbott, you know, if you don't know, vote no. I mean, does that not put the fire in your belly? You know, like, do you really want to see that? Like, what a... What an indictment on, on who we are as Australians if we let them get this. And, and so it's not just status quo as well um, for Indigenous people and, and, and the way that we're looked upon in the world, um, but it'll give them a mandate. You know, these people, they, it will give them a mandate to ignore us, to not listen to us, to continue with the dog whistling, to, con to take this nation towards the Trumpism and that, we, that we've seen um, across the Pacific. And, and this... This is what we're up against here. This is why we must win. I'd like to... Do we have some questions in the audience? I've got some online, but can I ask you, sir, to come to the microphone? Hello, my name's Kenny Bedford. I'm from the Torres Strait, Darling Island. Uh, I'm a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I want to thank uh, Bala Thomas and Kerry for your... Uh, your book and your advice through that book. I really just want to, um, in support, talk about how um, important it is for all of us to not just vote and to make informed decisions, but to bring people with us. And I'm asking and appealing to all of you in your workplaces, in your families, uh, through your circles of influence, it's not enough to just say, point people to the direction, we've got to bring people with us. This is more than uh, improving the situation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This is a nation-building opportunity, one that we can't miss. We don't want to see that obscene vision that we just mentioned here. And it'll be too late the day after the referendum. Uh, we'll miss the chance. So I just want people to think about that seriously. There's only a matter of months left. There's enough people uh, there that aren't quite sure yet, that can't get there, unless we cut through the noise and bring them with us. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a, um, my name's now. I'm 17. Um, I'm a proud Gomorrah man, and I just wanted to ask about, in my community, up where I live, I live um, in northern Sydney, um, I'm on the First Nations Youth Advisory Group. I'm the Youth Premier of New South Wales, so I'm the second Aboriginal Youth Premier, 
And there's a lot of stuff I'm doing. So in my community, I have a lot of people come to me and a lot of people ask me, oh, Noah, how should I vote on this? What do you think I should vote on this? Because they haven't, they haven't seen that. Um, they haven't seen the reasons for voting yes, but they've mainly seen the reasons for voting no. And we know that's reflected in the millions of dollars and the millions of people reached by the no campaign, particularly online on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, on all of them. And I was just wondering, how do you think the yes campaign will stack up against that coming at from more of a grassroots community basis? Thank you, Noah. Fills me, fills me with pride listening to you, young brother there, you know, doing that work and stepping up. Um, you know, you're, you're making history and, you know, your children and your grandchildren in the future are going to be very proud of you. I think the way that we stack up is that we're going to win. We're going to beat them because of the work that you're doing and the work that all these people are doing and because of the support that we have across the political spectrum and all these organisations that have come in behind it. I think, what is it, the only organisations that have come out officially against this is the, is the coalition, basically, and the IPA, you know? And, and Advance Australia, you know, which are funded by, by them. I mean, brother, look, look you to know, who look to who funds the IPA. Yeah, look to who funds the IPA. I won't name them, but uh, they won't surprise you. Hmm. Nor will the outcome of what the IPA says. They're, they're not. It doesn't take too much to discredit them. But do keep going, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, let's let's have confidence. Um, you, you're on the right path, um, and let's just keep working hard for it. And, and I don't think we should, uh, we should under... I, I think that um, my sense, and I'm not a part of the, the actual campaigning process, Thomas is, and I get some idea of what's going on from him, but, but my sense is that, <coughs> that the political process has kind of retarded the broader campaign to a degree, even though there's a lot of, mm. a lot of furious paddling going on under the surface around various communities in the country. But there's this sense, I think, of, of waiting a little while until, until it goes through the formal parliamentary process and then kind of, then the sleeves get rolled up and off we go. And I'm not sure that we can afford that amount of time. To be honest, at the same time, here's the conundrum. We actually don't want politicians campaigning too furiously themselves, and I think they're aware of that too. Uh, and uh, the, the fewer, ironically, the fewer politicians who are carrying the voice of this campaign and the greater the power of the voices mm. of ordinary Australians and extraordinary Australians outside the political process that are raised. That is where the real force of this debate is going to be. And this is where the debate is going to be won. Mm. It's going to be won by the people, not the politicians, even though it has been heartening to see the way Anthony Albanese on the very first night as they were still counting the votes, but he'd won, where he made it his number one, it was the very first thing, essentially, that he mentioned. Yes, that was heartening. Yes, of course, they have to facilitate this, but the real power is going to come from the people in the kitchen table conversations, and yes, on social media. The Yes campaign has to fight it on social media as well, in a principled way. Hmm. And yes, put the pressure back on the Australian media to do its job and play its part in the Australian democracy. I'm going to take a, a, one of our remote questions. From your travels across the country, do you think Australians are informed enough about the role the Constitution plays in our society, and do they need to be? Do we also need a clear and concise handbook about the role of our Constitution? That's from Pat and Bathurst. Yeah, thanks for the question, Pat. Um, before I answer that, I'll just say to young Noah, let's get in touch, eh? And we'll give you the support <laughs> there in the north. Good stuff. Um, no, Australians are... are uh, not informed enough about our constitution. There seems to be a really low level of understanding of civics in this country. Uh, and that is one of the challenges that we have. The government is rolling out a, a, a civics campaign uh, that I think began just last week. Um, and so there are efforts to make, you know, to help people understand what a referendum is um, and, and, uh, and what this is all about. Um, we have a clear and concise handbook now. There's a section in this book about referenda. <laughs> That's the um, most concise chapter in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there you go. Uh, a second question online. How do we deal effectively with the hurtful conversations that we have as advocates of the Yes campaign when talking to the No campaign? 
Well, <coughs> I, I, um, I think the very first thing that has to be acknowledged, I just saw myself on the screen and my wife's words echoed in my ear, sit up, Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been a sloucher all my life. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, <coughs> that we can take a lesson from the unnecessary but in the end important plebiscite on same-sex marriage. It was an unnecessary plebiscite, as we all know. It was an issue that could have and should have been dealt with by the parliament within their brief. But the fact that it happened, uh, and there was a great deal of hurt that was affected in that campaign as well. All I can say about that, and, I, and, and we see the hurt today. I mean, what, the way we've seen Stan Grant treated is not all related to this referendum, but they are linked and they are part of the, of the hurtful and shameful whole. Um, look at the results, nonetheless, of that plebiscite and the terrific vote that, that, uh, that supported the plebiscite and gave the politicians uh, who, who demanded a plebiscite uh, the courage to actually then proceed and do their job. And look at what's happened since the plebiscite. That united this country. So I hope that it was some consolation and that went some way to healing the wounds, healing the scars uh, from that plebiscite, that, uh, that, that with each year that's passed since that plebiscite, the support for same-sex marriage has only gone up. The nation is far more, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that, the, that the, uh, those who are capable of insulting and of demeaning it doesn't mean that they've completely shut up, uh, but they, they, they ha the, the, the sense of their weaponisation has been seriously diminished. And I, I believe that the same thing will absolutely happen in, in this case. I do have a good feeling about it. I believe it is going to get up, and I believe the same thing will happen. We will be much more united as a nation, and once the dust settles and we actually see the voice start to shake shape, take shape and do its job and see a respectful response from government and parliament it will only strengthen us all. Thank you very much. My name's Pauline Roach and I just want to um, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, question, every time I hear Warren Mundine interviewed, I sort of go into meltdown because he always says, I can't speak for this group, this group can't speak for, for me. And I'm just wondering how divisive that is being. Yeah, thank you, Pauline. I think um, I think Warren, in in many ways, is a walking, talking advertisement for the need for a voice. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, you know, he's a, a aspirant to political greatness. You know, he's he's been the. Labor Party president, he's, uh, you know, then switched over to the Liberals and, and ran for the Liberals. Um, I think he just wants to be, you know, up in lights, basically, um, sadly, and is willing to throw away, uh, you know, his, his moral obligations and, you know, to his people uh, and to this nation. Um, and this is a great problem that we have you know, in the absence of a structure with which we can choose our own representation and hold them to account, people like Mundine can get up and say that he is, even though, even with the qualification, you know, he's basically getting up there and, uh, and, and purporting to speak for Indigenous people. I mean, the thing with uh, Stuart Lingiari, you know, and, and uh, even after it came out, the truth of it, um, he continued to make excuses as if, you know, as if Stuart couldn't speak for himself, you know, on that matter that was so personal. They had to make some acknowledgement in the end, but, but, but the original stuff apparently remained on their websites, even yeah. though that acknowledged the, the flaws. Yeah. And, you know, we, sh we shouldn't... Political parties or politicians shouldn't be choosing who speaks for us. You know, the, the whole argument about who speaks for who is something that causes great division in our communities. Uh, across the country, uh, and um, and something that is exploited, and establishing this voice uh, is going to go a great way to um, to seeing more coherency and effectiveness in the way that we represent our interests. And one thing to me, Jennifer, that's really important, uh, despite the fact that it's I don't think it's possible 
to be completely uh, kind of benign in what we have to say. But I, I think it is terribly important that, that we try to set an example of civility. And I hope someone doesn't come back and make me eat my words there, but, but, but you know what I'm saying. I, I, this really should be a civil conversation, and I just wish that we could have the conversation in a civil and truthful way. That should not be a big ask, uh, but it is. You know, I, I don't think we should automatically approach the no campaign like as if everybody associated with it or everybody who expresses a public opinion or asks questions against the referendum should all be lumped into the same camp. I don't think that's the case at all, and I particularly, and I've got to say this carefully because I don't want it to sound condescending because it's not, that as a privileged white guy, um, I, I have the utmost sympathy for Indigenous people who genuinely, through through all the, uh, who, who come with an anger, particularly young people who come with an anger uh, over what they have seen about the way Indigenous history is, uh, you know, how truthful Indigenous, the picture that truthful Indigenous history paints, the, the cynicism and the contempt and the lack of respect often with it, with, within which, with which Indigenous people have been treated. I understand those things. But all I would say to those people who, who from, indigenous, from an Indigenous perspective, who, who are inclined to resist this, I would say, what have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? Take this and build on it. Don't do the old either or. I remember, we all should remember when Bob Brown, riddled with purity, led a no, a no in the Parliament, in the Senate, and rejected uh, an emissions trading scheme which would have enshrined in legislation a, a credible process uh, to deal with climate change in Australia. God, when was that? 2009, early 2010? And there, there were wasted years that followed that. That kind of purity we cannot, we cannot afford. I remember, I'm old enough to remember Gough Whitlam trying to say to the left of his own party when they were obstructing Labor's pathway into government when he said only the impotent are pure. <laughs> there is a truth in that. I think it's important that we do also recognise um, our white privilege and it's a conversation that we do need to have in this country, both in this debate and outside of it. One last question. Okay. My name is Gudgeon and I'm uh, a born and bred uh, Australian um, from the I mean, immigrant background of um, Sri Lankan heritage. Uh, I have a couple of questions that I would like to ask. So I've noticed a lot of um, negativity from mainstream media, for instance, mostly from News Corp, uh, like Sky News Australia, the Daily Telly, the Korean Mail and the Australian, as well as others to a degree like Fairfax nine media, like the Australian Financial Review. My concern is that they're doing all they can to sabotage the voice as well as deliberately divide or polarise um, the country with their coverage. In particular, uh, I was upset and annoyed with the way Stan Grant has been treated by media. My first question is that we'd like to know how the Yes Campaign Guide is planning to counter the misinformation from some parts of the media. And second question, how can the guide help convince as much naysayers as possible to vote yes? Hmm. Talk about it? Thank you, Gutchen. Uh, again, it's about community organising. It's about us having the conversations and if the Murdoch media is going to... Con and if the Murdoch media is going to continue to, and others, um, try to take down this campaign and damage it, because uh, even the positive stories have had a negative headline, right? Have you seen that? You know, so that people that only see what look at the headlines, you know, are still thinking the worst. Um, the only way we break through it is with conversations so that people are prepared for that, so that they know what is uh, what's false and what's true. Yeah. I'm sorry, we've, we've run out of time for questions, but before we finish, uh, Thomas has asked to do a recital of the Uluru Statement, so I'd like to invite you to do that. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention 
coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That a people's possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link should disappear from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk into worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.